Before we go ahead with this episode, let me ask you some questions. What was your biggest financial goal for this year? Putting down a deposit for your home, buying a BMW, going on a vacation, or preparing for retirement if you're that old? All brilliant and valid dreams. But valid doesn't equal easy. Sometimes you get stuck. You start to doubt your goals, their value, and your ability to make your dream come true. Here's where CowdyWise comes in. CowdyWise is a digital savings and investment platform that makes it easier to help you plan a sustainable path to your financial goals. It's an app that enables you to save and invest in a convenient way. You earn up to 15% on your savings. No penalties, no fees. You can save as little as you want. I've had co-founder of CowdyWise as a guest on this platform. I also use the product. It is simple and efficient. To get started, you can download the app at CowdyWise.com. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. I I think we need a fundamental rethink of, of the way we've structured our society. It tends to sacrifice merits at the altar of representation. So I'll ask you a direct question. Uh, is there politics in the future of Dr. Joe Abbott? No. And there's no politics whatsoever in my future. Why? I cannot do the double standards required. I can't do it. I cannot defend the indefensible. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is Dr. Joe Arbat. Dr. Abbott spent a lot of his career in public service, both in Nigeria and in the UK. His last tour of duty was as the Director General of the Bureau of Public Service Reforms in Nigeria, where he made significant impact and impression on the job, both as a reformist and as a top leader. In this episode, we discussed his journey from working with the UK Department for International Development, DFID, to adding a national agency for the Nigerian government. We discussed the complexities of decision-making in government where there are no easy and binary options. We also discussed the reasons why he left the government position even after he was asked to continue. It's a great pleasure to have you here to talk about how we're building the future in Africa. I want to start with your background. You grew up in the southeast uh, part of Nigeria? I actually grew up in Lagos. You grew up in Lagos? Yes. Wow, interesting. I was, I was born in Enugu right. uh, and then my family moved to 
to Lagos when I was six months old. And so Interesting. I'm, I'm, a, so I'm, a, Lagos Le- man. I'm a Lagos man. What part of Lagos did you grow up in? Uh, we lived in Ibutemeta in the mainland and then moved to Festac. And I lived in Festac until I went to the UK. We're, we're actually the original inhabitants of Festac. Super interesting. So we, we moved in immediately after the, the festival. After the 77 After festival. the 77 festival. And uh, my dad won a lottery. The lottery held at the National Stadium in Suleri uh, for the for the houses in Festac. And my dad won won a lottery and we got allocated a, a house in, in Festac. And so, uh, and the house we got was actually one of those that was used by uh, the, the people that came for the festival. So we were able to inherit some furniture as well. So, so that was fantastic. Okay, tell me about that. That's, <laughs> I didn't know that about your, your story. So yeah. you're that one of lottery to get a house. Yes. So for, 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 for background context, mm. F- Festac was the festival of uh, black yes, African the, arts. The, the second festival of black arts and culture. And it was held in Nigeria, and the Nigerian yes. government made a very big show of it. Yes. Almost like an Olympic. Yes. They built a new estate. Yeah. They used that as an opportunity to do more development in a part of Lagos that Correct. was underdeveloped. Correct. And they built a whole lot of houses. Yeah. Uh, almost like an Olympic village. Yes. And thousands of people were at the festival, mm-hmm. and some of them stayed in those houses. Mm-hmm. At the end of the festival, mm-hmm. they said, what are we going to do with this house? Are we mm. sell them or give some of them out to Nigerians? Mm-hmm. And your dad was one of the lucky ones that mm-hmm. got it for free. One of the no, no, no. Free. We didn't get it for free. We, we, uh, none of it was given out for free. Oh, even the lottery wasn't free? No, no, no. The lottery was to be able to, to get it and then pay on a mortgage basis to the Federal Housing Authority. So the estate was built by the Federal Housing Authority and then there was a lottery as to who could get it and then when you get it, you, you pay on a mortgage basis over like 25 years and it was deducted from my dad's salary until uh, such a time that I was able to pay it off on his behalf towards, towards the end. Was, it, yeah. was your dad a, uh, a public servant? Yes, both my parents were public servants. Okay, so yes. so you, you're only eligible to that kind of uh, lottery uh, opportunity if you're a public mm. servant? Or was no, not at one? all. It was open to all Nigerians. Like I said, he held at the uh, National Stadium in Suleri at the time, so anybody could uh, express an interest, obtain a form, and then if you, if you want it, you want it. So How would it determine uh, your affordability to pay then? Um, how would they know that, okay, this person has won it, fine. We give him yeah. an allocation. Yeah. How can he afford it? I, I think you normally have some sort of a, a, a traceable steady income so that will enable them to be able to deduct from your salary. So it may not have been available for you know, business people, I don't know. Um, we were quite young then, but I, I know that um, it, wasn't only, it wasn't only public servants that got it. So tell me about the shift from Ibutemeta, mm. probably living in another, maybe a flat in Ibutemeta, mm. and then you now move to this brand new estate mm. in Festac, which mm. is a bit like another suburb of Lagos. Mm. And so what I'm actually interested, because I'm a, I'm a kind of person who is interested in history, and I, mm. I love um, how urban, urban development and the people that, that shapes it, because mm. Festac has significantly changed now from what yes. it was then, most, yes. part of, most, Lagos, yes. most part of Lagos has changed. But tell me about living in Festac in, sev- in the late 70s. It, it, it was an absolute joy. Um, commercial vehicles were not allowed in uh, to, into Festac at the time, so we were able to walk 
long, uh, we're able to take long walks from the first avenue to the second avenue. And, you know, strolling and jogging was uh, was normal for people that, that, that lived in Festag then. Um, we also had a, a generator between every close that, that worked. We had telephones that worked. Um, we had water um, all the time. So it was, um, it was uh, perhaps the kind of thing that the Victoria Garden City tried to recreate uh, much later. It was, it was that kind of environment. And you, you actually felt proud telling someone you, you lived in Festac at the time. And uh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a wonderful community to, to grow up in. Um, uh, yeah, it was great. But mostly middle class. Yes, I would say mostly middle class because, uh, of course, it wasn't at the level of people living in Ikoi and Victoria Island at the time. And uh, it was quite a way above people living in Ibutemeta or, or uh, Ajegunle or Suleri at, at the time. So, yes, I would say it was uh, you know, perhaps upper middle class at the time. I, I say that because uh, I'm really interested in this notion of the uh, evolve evolution or sometimes devolution of the mm. middle class um, in, in, in Nigeria, especially, or in Africa generally, um, how people that lived in the 60s reminisce about there was a middle class. Probably it's the assumption around the fact that there were fewer, the population was smaller, uh, there was a huge, most of the people that were employed were in blue-collar jobs. And they were really, really employed. I have the money. And mm. They were either working for the government or working for some of the factory, some of the big companies, and and things were maybe relatively cheaper compared to the '90s. Um, and this is just my view. And I want to ask a question on the back of that. In the '90s, when there was population explosion growing up, uh, and then bad governance, military dictatorship, and there was a huge gap between the people that are ostentatiously rich mm. <laughs> and people that are really, really poor. And then maybe after 2000, then there was mm. the democracy and then maybe emergence of new middle class. What's your view about the evolution of middle class? Do you, are you of the view of the people that say, okay, there was a strong middle class in the 60s and 70s and there's no middle class now? Uh, or, or what is your view around that evolution of middle class in Nigeria? Well, I, I think to answer that question, one needs to, to, to get uh, a clear concept of what you mean by middle class, whether it's in terms of income or in terms of privileges uh, or access to, access to opportunities. In the, in the 70s and uh, 80s, um, if you're a public servant, you could afford to buy a brand new car on, on a higher purchase basis. Uh, which my dad did, you know, my, my dad bought a brand new 404, which we were very proud of at the time. Uh, as a public servant, he worked in the Federal Radio Corporation of Nigeria. My mom was a, a civil servant in the Ministry of Commerce at the time. Um, you were able to uh, get a house on a mortgage basis, just like I just told you about the one in Festac, so that, that was possible. Um, you were able to send your children to school, um, public schools, which were decent at the time. Public universities were actually rated higher than, than, than uh, uh, any other type. So, you know, you had a system where someone from a, a, a family with two public servants could go to King's College, could go to 
um, if a good university could aspire to wherever they, they want to get to and could get the basics of life, you know, get decent healthcare, decent schooling. That's what has been lost. So if, if that's what you mean by middle class, mm -hmm. that's the bit of it that has been lost. And so you can actually get uh, uh, somebody earning 500,000 Naira a month, 700,000 Naira a month now, who may not be able to afford good health care, may actually not be able to afford a decent house to live in, may, not, may never be able to afford a new car. Uh, because nobody will give him a, 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 a higher purchase to buy one. Um, <clears throat> and the banks, they, they, they charge ridiculous interests if you were to go to them. So that person may, may well be middle class or even upper middle class in terms of income, but in terms of access to you know, the, the basic comforts of life, um, they may not qualify as, as middle class. And so, so the concept of what is middle class shifts uh, all the time and um, and uh, people who may be seen as middle class today uh, in the 80s may actually be seen as multimillionaires. Uh, now, I don't actually know whether having a million naira or two million naira in the bank qualifies you as middle class. I, I don't know. But But is that, okay, there are a few things that you mentioned there that I want to tease out, which is uh, it's subtle and, and it's, it's a lot about access to finance, access mm. to social, uh, access to amenities, access mm. to good infrastructure, access to education. There's something that government will normally provide, like good schools, uh, healthcare, and, and maybe basic infrastructure or, or a good f um, mortgage finance. Yeah. Um, that has been lost. And, but isn't that a reflection of the population explosion? Explosion, and and that is that is not matched by uh, a very good uh, planning ahead of that to actually project that in the seventies maybe the general population was like fifty million, and people look at it. This, this is the birth rate, and this is the death rate, and then people uh, there will be urbanization, there'll be and population will get to about one fifty million in the next ten years, mm. and they didn't plan towards that. We're going to get into deepness. I'm going to deep dive into that more when I'm talking about your work in the government agency. But isn't the middle class lost as, as, as a result of there are more people now, there are a lot of pressure on the public service, mm -hmm. on, the, on the public infrastructure, a lot of pressure now on education. Nigerian, uh, Nigerian universities are maybe less than 300 mm. possibly, and that's not enough for millions and millions of people that graduate every year. Isn't that what has been lost rather than the fact that uh, People are earning more now, but then they don't, they're not middle class because they cannot afford those things that maybe your dad and my dad had access mm. to with the money that they were earning. Mm. It's a very important point because if your population is growing faster than your, your gross national income or your GDP, then, then you are progressively getting poorer. Um, but there are a number of issues around that. Uh, you, you quoted a figure of uh, perhaps 50 million. It's a major problem that we, we don't have credible census figures. We don't have credible national identification figures. Um, the last census we had was in 2006. We were to have done another one in 2016. Money was not released for it to be done, so we are dealing with projections. Um, and so if you, take a, if you take a place like Abuja, for instance, the minute you, you finish planning for particular infrastructure, it's already too small because of the, 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 the growth of the uh, population. The other problem, of course, is that you know, a place like Abuja has three different populations. So there's a, there's a daytime population, 
of people that work in Abuja but don't necessarily live here. They live in neighboring uh, states, actually. There's a nighttime population of you know, people that actually sleep in Abuja. Um, some of them don't necessarily live here. They travel to their families for the weekends. And then there's a weekend population, and, and those are the ones that actually live in Abuja. And they are, they, each, of these, each of these populations are, get progressively smaller. Uh, because those that can actually afford to live in Abuja uh, are not as many as those that you find here during the day. So, unless you have very good statistics, I discussed this with uh, Bill Gates the last time he was here, uh, because he was showing these uh, satellite imagery and, and trying to use that to compute population. And I was saying, it depends on what time you take it. Interesting. What time of the day you take it and what day of the week you take it. So if you, if you take it on a Friday, um, it's going to be less than if you take it on a Thursday, because many people travel on Friday. If you take it on a Saturday or on a Sunday, it's going to be less than it's going to be if you take it on a Monday. If you take it during the day, it's going to be smaller, it's going to be larger than if you take it in the evening. So, so, but the point is, unless you have a bit of sophistication in your planning, then it's very, very difficult to plan for infrastructure. Take, take Lagos as another example. If you want to do a census or people want to vote, virtually everyone that comes from the southeast travels to the southeast to go and vote and to go and be counted. That's super interesting. So people yeah. live in Lagos, they yeah. pay tax in Lagos. Yeah, they but they don't, they don't they vote, don't in, vote Lagos. in Lagos. They don't they, vote in Lagos and they don't get counted in Lagos for census purposes. Is that a decision that they've made or is that how the Lagos government wanted them to behave? No, the, the, it goes to the issue of the allocation of resources because Nigeria has a formula that allocates resources using a number of parameters including population. And so if people from the Southeast don't go to the Southeast to be counted in the Southeast, uh, the calculation will show that, oh, there are more people in Lagos, and therefore Lagos deserves a higher allocation from the federal funds. Interesting. Actually, yeah. I want to put a point in that. If it is that argument out, okay, I'm from Imo, let's say I'm from Imo State. Yeah. And I wanted Imo State to have the right allocation because yeah. Nigeria has this weird allocation based um, mm. federal allocation of capital mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. investment mm -hmm. based on population yeah. of different states. Lagos has maybe 20 million, and my state has like 3 million. Mm -hmm. But there are people from my state, Imo state, mm -hmm. about maybe one million of them are living in Lagos. Yes. So I'm saying, I should, everybody, want, that one million people should go to Imo state and be counted. So, I'm not saying they should. No, I'm no, telling I'm you they, what happens. What yes. But then the argument is that if they are allocating less to Lagos mm. compared to the, the population that mm -hmm. consume that is, mm -hmm. It's going to affect me because I, I live in Lagos. I do my of education, course. my infrastructure, everything is in Lagos. Absolutely. But because of this African mindset of homeland, mm. it's very key. And it's the soil. And mm. I'm from that place. Mm. And it makes that I, I have my, my first allegiance mm. is to my home state. Mm. And, and, and that also affects the state of origin problem, right? Yes. It, it, it doesn't just affect it, it's probably created by the state of origin problem. Right. Uh, because if, if we don't have a state of origin issue, 
then you know people would normally want to vote and and uh, be counted where they pay their taxes you know that's where so if i pay my taxes in lagos what who gets elected in lagos affects me more than actually who gets elected in say emo state if because it, it you know it's where you live that your daily life is affected mm-hmm. uh, but because but because if you want to get into a particular position there's some sort of a quota system that relies on where you're from and you know it, the allocation you get so your father's village or your town in Imo state is, is affected by how many people are counted when it comes to censuses people who move around in that way I've read one of your views about taking a position around the, the Nigerian constitution and yes. about a reform. And you raised some very fundamental questions around uh, whether we need 36 states, uh, whether the state of origin should be a thing that should be a factor, whether those states should be, should be named in the constitution. And, and you raised a very, very strong reform-based question that is fundamental to uh, the way Nigerian state itself was structured since the 60s. Hmm. Can you talk me through more of that view about now we've raised some problems now, but mm. what are your own views around how that can be solved, especially around taxation and representation, um, uh, state allocation, um, federal allocation of capital and development across the country? I, I think we need a fundamental rethink of, of the way we've structured our society because a lot of that, a lot of those uh, structural issues give rise to a number of problems that are manifesting in different ways. The first is that the Nigerian constitution is structured to prioritize sharing uh, and to prioritize representation. And, And in a lot of ways, it tends to sacrifice merit at the altar of representation. And also, quite often, it invariably promotes a large state. If, you know, you must have 36 ministers, you must have at least one from each state. So whether you need 36 or not, according to the constitution, you must have it. Um, The importance is representation, um, not function or need. Um, You then get uh, organizations like the, the, the Federal Civil Service Commission, the Independent National Electoral Commission, the uh, Federal Character Commission. Each of these commissions are actually named in the Constitution. And it says for most of them, there must be a commissioner from each state. Interesting. And so, so automatically, you, you, you've created a large state. The problem comes when the income starts to shrink. Because when the income starts to shrink and you can no longer run such a large state, it creates a tension in the polity, which was always avoidable. But because it's been named in the constitution in in that way, because the states have been named, the local governments have been named, you can only change it when you change the constitution. The interests that are benefiting from this dysfunction are the ones that have the power to change the constitution. And so they will not. And that's why I, I often say, uh, like we say in Nigeria, we've entered a one-chance vehicle with no brakes. Because the things that will lead to a cheaper state, a, 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 per, perhaps a unicameral legislature, a part-time legislature, uh, a legislature that is not able to award itself the highest salaries in the world for, for legislators. 
are the only ones who can change the cons this constitution to stop that from happening. Are they going to vote for that? It's not going to happen. And that's why we need to uh, make this a campaign issue for all the people that want our votes in 2019. That's the only way it's going Constitutional to happen. Constitutional reform? Yes. Right. So doesn't that strike... I, I know the history of this current constitution. It was um, the, the current version. and I know it's, it's been amended over time. 1999, Nigeria was just getting out of very brutal, uh, terrible military dictatorship. Mm. And it was quickly done uh, and, and it was given to the country then. And I know Nigerians very sensitive to the history. Uh, a lot of things that we see in the state was as a result of the reaction to the civil war. A kind of feeling that some tribe or some part of the country were uh, disenfranchised. And, and I think that was a bit of reaction about this representation. Mm. Don't you think even though what you're proposing is quite good uh, in terms of logical, don't you think it will raise a lot of wounds and reactions that are majorly not logical but very, very emotional? Mm. Uh, apart from the vested interest of money, but mm. just emotional to some mm. people. It, it, it's a good point, Otto. Um, in every multicultural, multi-ethnic society, you need a level of representation to ensure social cohesion and to avoid problems and it happens everywhere you know uh, even places like the US have affirmative action uh, the UK as you know has uh, has an equal opportunities regime so you need some something however that's a different mindset from making sharing the whole purpose of 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 the structure which is what we have at the moment and so if you do away with things like the state of origin, then people are invested in where they live and, and, and you know, that, that affects their lives. Uh, and that, that's a completely different thing. And it takes away this primordial attachment to, you know, a, a, a place you may not even visit. A number of us Igbos live in one-room shanties in the city and we have a mansion in the village. And, and we only go to the village maybe at Christmas, and spend maximum of 10 days. And then we have to come back. And then the house is there wasting away. Because in the, in the back of our minds, we still think, ah, if there's another civil war tomorrow, yeah. I need to have a place to, 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 to run to. So, but, but these are the tensions that, that lead to these, these worries. Um, just, just yesterday, we, we had a, a case of uh, the, the Director General of the SSS. SSS is the State, uh, the, Security. The, the, the State Security Service, or the, the Department for State Security is the proper name for it. And so the Director General was removed for some reason. As is the case with the public sector, the most senior director was asked to act until a new Director General is appointed. It so happened that the most senior director that was acting is from Bayelsa State. Yesterday, a substantive director general was appointed. Typical Nigerian thing, oh, he's been removed because he's from the south. Uh, President Buhari has again appointed the northerner and, and all of that and all of that. And the way things happen in Nigeria, I've, I've been in the system. The way it happens is if you're made acting director general, you can go two ways. You can either try to do a very good job and maybe convince your principal to say, ah, this guy is doing fantastically well, we might as well keep him on. Or you could go the other way and go talk to your senator, go talk to your House of Reps member, go talk to your ethnic group and whip up ethnic sentiments 
to say uh, they may remove me because I'm from the I'm from the south, and then that should place pressure on your principal not to remove you because they don't want a backlash of what they want to say. But the truth is, no director general of the SSS has been promoted from within to be DG. None. Interesting. They've also they've always been retired security personnel or people who have come from outside have become DGs. The second thing is that the normal civil the normal public service rules is like I said, the most senior director acts pending when a substantive DG is appointed. Usually it's actually not very common to have the acting person confirmed because of issues of tenure. So, assuming this guy acts for, say, two years, for instance, and then is confirmed uh, as a substantive DG, do you count the two years he's acted as part of his tenure, or does his tenure start right. from when he's been made a substantive DG? So, it DG? creates some tenor so, issues. Yeah, so it, crea- it can create some, some issues. But quite often, what happens is somebody else is brought from outside. But anyway, the point is... People whip up these kinds of sentiments. And of course, if the government itself is not mindful of issues of balance, then it, it can leave itself open to these kinds of accusations. Because people will make a list and say, look, this uh, chief of army staff is from the north, this one is from the north, all the security personnel are from the north. And I think the government needs to be a bit more Sensitive. intelligent in, 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 in the way that it manages issues of diversity. And, and I, I agree with you on that totally. And but I also think that there is a lot of assumptions in terms of motives, especially in Africa generally, because of our tribal thinking. Yeah. Um, that has also been, again, I'll blame the colonial. It has it has been capitalized upon by the colonial uh, government uh, previously uh, to to just whip up tribes against each other, knowing that. We, we are always fighting each other anyway in, 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 the, in the 18th century and 19th century. But that is, it's the remnant of that is that, that we're primordial in our thinking. That I will assume that you're from one particular tribe and whatever decision you make is colored by that. Yeah. So the president is from the East and whenever I appoint, whether that person is the most qualified person, mm. whenever I appoint somebody who is from the East, mm. I just assume that he's doing that because... Mm is trying to promote somebody from mm. his from mm. the state. Mm. And it's very hard, I think, for people, I mean, it's good to be balancing things, but it's always hard to tread that line and, and always be defending yourself every time. <laughs> it, 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 it is hard, and I, I can use my own, uh, my own example of, of how I came into to government to, to illustrate the point. I, I went for uh, a seminar at the Hilton in Abuja here, and a new head of service had just been appointed. And, and I said, you know, are you going to do the right things or are you going to just carry on like everybody else has done? And, and he said, you know, uh, what do you think are the right things to do? And I set out what I thought needed to be done. And that was that. I was on holiday in the US when, you know, my phones and emails started going crazy. They are looking for you. They are looking for us. Who's looking for me? Apparently, the president. What seems to, what has happened is that the when they were looking for a director general for the Bureau of Public Service Reforms, this head of service said, "There's one young man that challenged me at the Hilton. That's the kind of person we need. Go look for him." Okay, the guy is from is guy is from Yobe. Um, my surname is Abba. It doesn't sound Igbo. it even sounds northern. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I, I was appointed. He didn't know me from anywhere. 
The president appointed me based on my CV. I didn't know him from anywhere. Did he I didn't know anybody you? in government. There was no interview. I was just appointed based on the, the strength of my CV alone. And, and so when I, when I started work, the, this uh, head of service took me to the secretary to government. I'm from a Boeing state. The then secretary to government was also from a Boeing state. I had worked with him for three months before he realized we were from the same state. The issue never came up. Interesting. Incidentally, it was this head of service from Yobe State that was saying, oh, DG, will you visit the SGF over Christmas? And the, the, the SGF, the secretary to government, said, oh, how would he come from Yobe to come and visit me in a Boeing? He thought you are from Yobe. Yes. The secretary to the government thought you are from Yobe. He thought I was from Yobe be because he was a person from Yobe that identified me and recommended me to the president. Interesting. And so, and so he said, how would he come from Yobe to come and visit me in, in Ebonyi? And the head of service said, come from Yobe to do what? He's from the next village to you. And that was the first time he knew that we were not from from the same state. And so, and so for me, when the elections were, the election campaigns were going on and somebody said, oh, you need to go and campaign for President Jonathan in a Boeing state. I said, I'm not going because I wasn't appointed because I'm from a Boeing state. That's not why I was appointed. I was appointed because I had a certain pedigree and I had a CV which fitted what, what he wanted. And that's why I was able to stay away from, uh, you know, from the partisan politics, which I've always been able to stay away from. But if I had wanted to, I could have gone the other way and then, you know, got involved with, you know, partisan politics, got involved with being counted among the Igbo DGs. But that wasn't how I came into government. Because you went in on the merit of your yes. previous... Let's yes. talk about your previous... And it still does happen in Nigeria. It does happen that it people are happen. appointed based yes. on the merit purely of based them. on merit. And, okay, let's talk through that. And, and one of the key things I want to get out of that is, because there's a lot of cynicism about government. Yes. The people you call bureaucrats are people who are probably experienced in the private sectors or, or, or governmental sec sectors like you in the UK or US. And part of the question I want to ask is around governance is complex. Mm -hmm. And is, there are lots of intricate and complicated uh, issues that does not... Uh, that having a binary answer to them, yes or no, is just not the right way Correct. to do it. Because one answer can lead to other complicated problems that you are envisaging. And it lends itself to people going into governance and you think that person has is sold out because of some decisions they are making. But we are not privy to the data that they have to make those decisions. So the question I want to ask is, what would be your recommendation for somebody who maybe went through that merit and actually have passion for governance, uh, like mm. you said in one of your quotes, you said um, something around that people can avoid um, politics but do not avoid uh, governance. Mm -hmm. um, I, I paraphrased it. What would be your 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 key lesson and and, and learning that people are coming like you who are who are that meritorious and they they have passion for governance but they want to help, they want to contribute, and and, and what, how can they get there? And number two, what should they do whilst they're there to keep their integrity intact and contribute? Um, I, think, I think, first of all, how do they get there? I, I told you how I got there because I, I was interested in governance 
as a citizen of, of Nigeria. I was interested in what happens in the civil service. I was interested in how the public service functions. I was interested in issues of governance, and that's why I, you know, um, that's why I, I attended this forum and I, I, I contributed my views. Secondly, I had a clear idea in my mind of what I thought needed to be done. I wasn't just going there to criticize. And so when, when I was asked, okay, what would you rather do? Or what would you do, do differently? I had a number of views. You're quite right. Uh, some of those views may not have been with the benefit of insider knowledge. However, at least I was able to demonstrate that I knew uh, I, was, I had a familiarity with the issues. So what I find um, is that very many Nigerians know very, very little about how government actually functions. To make it worse, government does a woeful job of explaining to citizens how things work. So there's, there's, there's still a level of arrogance within government where we're doing it for you, so you should be grateful. Uh, the concept of a public servant being a servant of the public is not something that a number of public servants internalize. And so many people will tell you I'm a public servant. They don't actually internalize that it means that I'm a servant of the public. I actually have a theory for that. The reason is, I think it's part of the legacy of the colonial system where the colonial public servants are mm. the rulers. Yes. And, yes. and also a cultural system of power gap Deference the to authority. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think, I, th I think you're right in that regard. And so there's a need to start to shift that mindset because citizens are becoming more aware, they're asking more questions. A number of instruments are now available to challenge government. There's a Freedom of Information Act. There are a number of NGOs that are becoming very competent in, in, in knowing what to ask for and making sure that they get it. And so it's incumbent on the, on the, on the public servant to start to shift that mindset from a, a provider uh, of services for which people should be grateful to actually being a servant of the people. And if you, if you take it on a domestic level, a, a servant, even if you abuse them, they don't abuse back. They are not cantankerous. They are not... So, so it's a totally different shift in mindset and and they're also accountable they they, they 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 let you know this is what i've done and this is why i've done it and that's the that's the shift in thinking that we need to develop and so anyone so you're i'm trying to tease out our original question about the lessons for people that are going into governance yeah. uh, from let's say private sector who yeah. wants to we genuinely contribute yeah because i know and, and again it's good to to also state that that there are people who go into governance because they want to seek rent. Mm. It's a rent seeking, it's mm -hmm. a way to make money. Mm -hmm. It's huge poverty in, 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 mm. in Africa. Mm. One of the best secured and pensionable jobs for you is to be in governance and go into politics. But for people who really, really genuinely want to contribute, I really want to know how they can actually walk the line. Mm. And based on your experience and some of the issues, maybe you can walk us through, you can some of the issues that you have to go through in your time as yeah. a DG mm. uh, and uh, 
sometimes maybe making a call between a, a bad and a worse decision. Mm, mm, <laughs> and, um, mm. and, and also maybe where integrity is on the line and mm. how are you able to walk through that? It, 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 first of all, it depends very much on how you came into government. So if, if I came into government, a member of the PDP or a member of the APC, then there are certain ways it, it's a bit difficult to completely divorce yourself from that. And so if you came in as a, as a member of the APC or the PDP and the party is doing something wrong, it's going to be a little more difficult for you to call them out and say this party is doing something wrong or this government is doing something wrong. So that's, that's the first thing. Oh, and also, if, uh, if as a budget holder you're told to go and look for money for elections, you know, it's going to be a bit more difficult for you to say, I can't, being that you've come in uh, as, uh, as a beneficiary of, uh, of, of party membership. What does that mean? Go and look for money for elections as a budget holder. You allocate some of the budget for the ministry or for the department for the party. Is that what um, it, it's not done as uh, it's not done as plainly as that. Uh, there are there are party members who are awarded contracts. Uh, there are people that fund travel for people. So somebody can come to you and say, "Oh, we're organizing a prayer session for President Buhari or President Jonathan," and a number of people are coming from five states to do so. Uh, can you help with their transport fare? It's it's something like that. You know, so, 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 so it depends on how you came into government. It also depends on the job you have to do. And so the job I had to do was a job of reforming the public services, which means causing discomfort. It often means causing discomfort for a lot of people. If I was an MD NMPC, I may have a different outlook. If I was executive secretary of the tertiary education trust fund whose job is to dispense cash basically i may have a different mindset but my job was to say this is not working we need to get it to work better and this is how we should do it and that is regardless of uh, political colorations regardless of whose ox is god that's why when the last government lost the elections uh, i was actually the only serving member of the jonathan government that was invited to the APC policy dialogue, which took place a week before they took power. Interesting. And, and I had to go to the president to say, I, I need permission to attend. Because you're, you're working as a government official in a particular government. That is fading out. That is phasing out. And then an incoming government or in a, 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 an opposition political party has invited you as the only person to come and, you know, give your views on how they should govern when they came in. And, and, you know, President Jonathan said, oh, everybody knows you're a technocrat. The same hell you've given our government, I know you will give their government. So by all means, go. And I, and I did. I, I was the only person to have been invited that, that was serving in government at the time. Let's talk about some of the decisions that you took as a public servant director general. Um, you talked about you are giving people a lot. I mean, you, your job was to reform the public service, yeah. which by itself is massive, is yeah. pro problematic. It means you're going to have a lot of enemy. You're going to step on a lot of toes. Mm -hmm. You can talk to some of the stories and some of the examples of how some of the some things that you did. And I'm, I'm particular about the stories of tensions and contentions and, and, and how that was resolved, just to give an idea of what happens in government okay. to people from the outside and know the complexities that you're talking about. Okay. What a lot of people don't actually realize is that when you are appointed 
to a senior government position, like you're a director general or nobody actually tells you what to do. Nobody tells you do this or don't do that. If you do it and it works, good for you. If you do it and it doesn't work, it's your headache. So some of the things we try to push actually was for the president to give ministerial mandates to his ministers that says, this is what I want you to do. And then to identify a number of critical agencies to also give very clear directives about what his vision is. You find that that doesn't actually happen a lot of the time. Now, the other thing that I found is that a lot of public servants actually want it to work. Interesting. Because, because they are victims of the, the bad system, just like anybody else. So they too wanted to work. And so, and so a lot of the times, people, people told me, oh, the president will never allow that. Oh, this minister will never allow that. When I found a way to get to the, uh, to the president or the minister, I found that that is actually what they've been asking for, that people in the middle have been blocking. Because so, of vested interest? Well, well I don't know. I, I, it could be vested interest. It could be... Uh, another thing I found, actually, is that there's actually quite a lot of laziness. I, I, I mean, I hope I don't get into trouble for this. But there's actually quite a lot of laziness in the public sector. A lot of people tell you this will never work without making the efforts to try and make it work. And so, and so what I found is that a lot of the things I did, I was able to do the analysis and place the options in front of the decision maker. You could go this way, you could, but at least I'd done the analysis, I'd done the pros and cons. And in a lot of cases, they will choose the right thing. So a lot of people will tell you, you know, government doesn't want this to work because of vested interests, because of corruption and on. In the public service, you don't want anybody else to be corrupt, perhaps apart from yourself. So you, you want to narrow this fear, corruption. And you want things to work because there's no politician that doesn't like taking credit. There's no politician that doesn't like glory. And so, and so if, you're, if you're a public servant and you can make something work, your principal will take that credit or at least sharing that credit with you. So, so what I say to people is, look, just go in and try and do your best and keep going until somebody says stop. And in my experience, nobody ever says stop. So you are able to critically uh, analyze stuff for the government, even some uncomfortable decisions and, and things that they have to do. Can you walk me through some of the examples, the ones that maybe in the news or, or maybe not in the news that was huge? Uh, maybe the president had to make a tough decision that other people have said, this is not going to work. Let me give you, let me give you the, the best example is probably that of the uh, rationalization of agencies and parastatals. So in 2011, government set up uh, a, a commission, the Orosoye panel, to look at the number of agencies we had, catalog them, recommend those who should stay and those should, who should go. And Orosoye documented 541 agencies in 2011. Two weeks ago, I was in, I was in the, National, the Nigerian Bar Association conference sitting next to the Director General of the Budget Office of the Federation. He announced that he had to make provision for more than 1,100 agencies. That's in a space of Bloated. seven years. Okay? That's in a space of seven years. Okay. So when the new government was coming in, um, I was asked my opinion about how I thought the ministry should be configured. 
And I gave that opinion both to the secretary to government and to the vice president. And uh, largely, well, maybe, you know, but for one or two ministries, the president largely followed what we, what we recommended. And so the number of ministries came down from 31 to 24. And then the president said, having done the ministries, we now need to do the agencies. And I want to rationalize the agencies. I want to implement this Orosoy report to get it. You know, that was in 2015. In 2018, it has still not happened. And so you get, this is the president's wish. And then the chairman of the, <clears throat> of the body that's supposed to implement it was a secretary to the government of the federation who didn't necessarily believe in the same... Uh, in, in the same idea. And so you had me listening to the president saying we need to do the... I was the secretary to the committee. The, the, the secretary to government was the chairman of the committee. And so you had me pushing and pushing. Oh, the president has said this. We need to have a meeting. We need to do this and do that and take a decision on these agencies. And the, the, the secretary to the government will say, yeah, submit your report. We'll look into it. And it just didn't happen. Um, it was when I was about to leave government that you know the the economic management team chaired by the the vice president said, "Ah, we have a problem. We can no longer afford this number of agencies um, DG come and tell us how we go about it. Tell us the work you 've done already. We need to push this uh, and I came and I presented to them, and it was like you know I think it was like this was like two weeks before I left government. And I, even after I left government, I was invited to come and present to the economic management team about what could be done. And I did. You know, I did. And I said, these are all the things that need to be done. These are the decisions you need to take. It needs to go to council. Council needs to take that decision and we need to move forward on it. I don't know what has since happened. I know we still have more agencies than we need. Well, as you know, I, I, I do some academic work and, and a lot of that academic work tends to talk about the importance of political will. So if you're going to make a change, you need political will. My current academic interest is in where political will is not enough because that's the example I've just given you. So you, you have political will from the highest level but it is not enough. There are to push the agenda and push <laughs> exactly. the policy. Exactly. That's an interesting notion, though, where the political will is not enough. And again, one can start debating about your academic interests around what is the dysfunction here. Is it is it a lack of champion or is it a lack of particular interest from that political will in terms of pushing it and saying I want this to be done and can you give me a time for it to be done? Or is it lack of political capital to be able to push it? And it, it could be interesting to, to, to pursue that. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask a question around, given all you know, I've been an insider in the Nigerian government, uh, and maybe an overview of, of government, particularly the Nigerian government, what are the hopes that you have about the future of, of Nigeria? Uh, le let me start with my, my, my work in the Bureau, because I, I worked in an identical organization in, in the UK as well, the Prime Minister's Office of Public Service Reforms. Uh, and we were always aware that, look, you need to address certain you know, uh, uh, topical issues at the moment, uh, but we're aware that a lot of the interventions we're designing had a gestation period of 10 to 20 years. We knew that. But, you know, the, if you like, the uninitiated 
will say, what have you done today? You, you've had four years and nothing has changed, right? They, which they, they, they aren't they're entitled to say because, like I said, there are some low-hanging fruits you must tackle to build confidence in people that things can actually change. That's on the one part. On the other part, the, the, the way to do reforms, actually, is to push gradually. That's why reforms are different from revolutions. So revolutions, you tear down and you start again. Revolutions tend not to have a good track record worldwide, all through history. Anyway, apart from the, the catharsis that, you know, you shed blood and shed tears and everybody feels better, we start again and then the establishment reestablishes itself. Yes. So, so but in terms of uh, reforms, you push for certain things. Quite often, uh, the establishment doesn't actually realize that it has given up some of its power. Interesting. And so, so you appoint someone like Ribadu in EFCC, and you think, oh yeah, he's a passionate guy, he'll do well. You don't actually know that he'll go as far as arresting his own boss, the Inspector General of Police, and putting him in handcuffs. You don't know that. Uh, at the time, the system eventually realizes that, then it starts to fight him. Right? That's the way it happens. Sometimes, too, you pass certain legislation. So you pass the Freedom of Information Act. You don't actually realize that what you've passed is, in effect, the second most powerful legislation in the country. Because you can only, the only reason you can, the only thing you can rely on not to provide information in, according to that act is the Constitution. That's the, that's, the, that's the most powerful law in the land. Of course, apart from certain exemptions, like if it's a security-related yeah. information or it's personal information, like you're, you're asking about my HIV status, I don't have to give you. If you're asking uh, when next will you move against Boko Haram, the government doesn't have to tell you. But if it's, tell me how you spend government money, tell me what you spent it on, you have to provide us information. So a lot of people, so government passes these, these things. They pass uh, an, an FOI act, they, they pass a whistleblower policy, they pass uh, uh, a gender-based violence uh, act, they pass a not-too-young-to-run act. And ease of doing business. Ease of doing, they don't realize immediately what it's doing. So take the not-too-young-to-run act, for instance. They pass it, and then immediately the parties raise the uh, price for nomination fees. So you can run for governor uh, at the age of 35, but to get the form, you need to pay 22.5 million naira just to obtain the form. Um, how many young people are going to be able to do that? It almost automatically disenfranchises them. However, one day, a Davido or Whiskid who can afford 22.5 million naira will pay for it and will suddenly be able to, uh, to contest. And so, yes, so, so we do these things and that's where my hope comes from because we are, we are part of the... Nigeria has signed up to the Open Government Partnership. We're, we're pursuing some anti-corruption uh, laws. We're pursuing issues of... Uh, we're, we're doing some amendments to our constitution. They may not be the ones that that we want, our democracy is growing stronger, votes are actually beginning to count, uh, politicians are buying votes, which they will not be buying if the votes were not counting. Uh, so there are a few things, that there are a few chips in the building block that are growing, which 
the establishment doesn't even fully realize yet, but which in a few years' time uh, will, will start to make a difference. Apart from that, there are also a number of young people in critical positions. So there are young people in EFCC, there are young people in ICPC, there are a few young people that want to do well. Uh, just yesterday, a DG of government came to see me in my office. I'm no longer in government, but there are about 12 DGs, current seven DGs, that want me to convene some sort of a forum where people who want to work can actually strengthen each other and encourage each other. And I say to them, I'm no longer in government. They say, that's the more reason. Interesting. Because there are a number of people who are interested in governance. There are a number of people who are interested in a better Nigeria who are going through the same struggles that I've gone through. And they're asking me the same questions that you're, you're asking me. How did you manage? How did you go about it? How, did you do, how do you remain sane? How were you able to live with your head held high? How did you not resign when things go wrong? So there are a crop of people who, who want to do well, who want to serve, and that, that fills me with a lot of hope. So generally you have hope about the way we're going. Absolutely. The wheel might be turning slowly, yes. but the wheel is turning in the right direction. It is turning, yeah. absolutely. That's it doesn't okay. always feel that way. Um, because sometimes it feels that we take a step forward and two steps back, uh, but that step forward we've taken is actually far more impactful than people realize. You know, it's far more impactful. And I think on an aggregate basis, if you, if you trace the trajectory from 1999 to now, we have actually made a lot of progress. A lot of people don't realize it, but we have. So let's talk about your living and your current work you're not doing with DAI. And yeah. I want to know two things. One, your decision to leave. Uh, yeah. Was it that okay, I've done enough here or I'm tired? <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> or both? <laughs> and, then, and then why you took the decision to go into uh, what you call an NGO? A, a We're not NGO. an NGO. We're actually a private uh, company for profits. Is it? Yes. It, it, it appears like a pressure group. No. Okay, so you talk me through the current work you are doing now, okay. and but I want to know the back the backstory. Um, there are a number of there are a number of things. First of all, when I when I came into government, it was on the basis that you've always preached and you know advocated about these things. Come and try, right? To which I couldn't say no because I called my wife, I called my mom, and I said, first of all, what are we going to eat? Because coming into government meant a 70% pay cut. That's what uh, happened when you yes. moved from DFID? Yes, from, from running a DFID program to, to, to being a DG. 70% yes, cut. I took a 70% pay cut to, to do so. And so the first thing is, how are we going to survive? That, that was the first thing. The second thing, of course, is how serious are they? So these two things also were factors in, in my living. Um, because, of course, the 70% pay cut that I took to join in, in 2013, uh, by 2017, I'd become a 90% pay cut because of the devaluation of the Naira. Interesting. Um, so, um, and so when the, the, the talk of, of uh, uh, a second term came up, my wife and my kids basically sat me around the table and said, in the four years you've been DG, we cannot point to a new house. We can't point to a new car. We can't point to a new plot of land. We can't point to anything financial that we can say you've gained from being in this position. 
and you are also exposed to a lot of people that of thought course, that you are very of rich course, of and will be coming to you for financial help. Of course. What is worse, for the first time in our lives, we're writing letters to the children's schools to allow us pay by installments because we, you know, we simply could not afford uh, to, to do so. And so, the families, and, and so the families said, you know, can you explain to us why you should continue? Because we are progressively getting poorer. Of course, part of my responsibility as DG, and if you like, maybe it, it, you could count it as one of my failings in office, is the need to reform the remuneration of the public sector, you know, which the, the relevant agency simply paid lip service to for the, the period that I was there. So for me, so, you know, one of the things I did not achieve was to reform the public sector to such an extent that it could afford to keep people like me uh, and pay me enough to, to, to take care of my, my family. That's on the one part. On the second part is that I, I came into government with two ambitions in mind. One is to reform the ministries, the other is to reform the agencies. In terms of the, in terms of the uh, ministries, we had achieved some uh, movement in that we had reduced from 31 uh, ministries to 24. We had also started a process of re-engineering the ministries, which uh, we had done for the six ministries that were merged. For some reason, it just didn't move forward. We had finished the work, it just needed to be taken to council and approved, and then we were to do the same thing for all the other ministries. Because believe it or not, for for 54 years or so of uh, of uh, civil service in Nigeria, we had not done what you'd normally do in the private sector, which is to link the mandate to the individual. So here's the mandate of the ministry. Therefore, this is what is meant to achieve. This is what the political, this is what the government in power wants it to achieve. Therefore, this is how you organize the, the departments, this is how you organize the units, and this is what Joaba comes to work to do on a Monday morning to contribute through that chain to the mandate of the ministry. We had not done that. And so the, the ministries that we merged, power works and housing, information and culture, interior with uh, police uh, affairs, provided an opportunity for us to take a look at this afresh. And so we did this for the six ministries that were merged and submitted it to the head of service of the Federation to take to council, get approval, and then get approval for us to do it for the rest of the uh, the, the, existing the, the, the existing ministries. So the fact that that didn't move forward as planned was frustrating, particularly as we had donor funding to be able to drive this. So that was frustrating. On the other hand, the reposition of agencies of government was frustrating because my boss, the secretary to government, wasn't pushing it the way that the president uh, wanted it pushed. So that too was frustrating. So the two main things I, I came in to do, plus the, 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 the economic, economics, yeah, made it very, very difficult. In terms of the approach to reforms, these were sort of the big things. Um, but like I said from the start, even though you want to do the big things, you also want to do uh, the day-to-day -day smaller things. And so I focused my, my energy 
on giving Nigerians a better experience when they come in contact with government. And so I actually did a poll on Twitter and asked, what would you like the bureau that I run to focus on next year? And people said, driver's license, passports, getting a tax clearance, getting a, a, a national identification number. And that formed the work plan of, of the bureau. And so we're able to make that experience uh, better, the experience you get when you come into government. And we did that to show that it was possible. Um, so, so, you know, uh, and, and having shown that it was possible, having reorientated the reforms, I mean, people tend to ask me, what is your greatest achievement in government? And my greatest achievement in government, I would say, is shifting the focus of public service reforms from the public service to the public. All the reforms we had been doing in the past was about our training, our tenure policy, our monetization policy. It was always to do with the public service. Mm. And so engineering this shift to the public, what does the public experience when they come in contact with government, when they come for any sort of licensing, when they do business with government? So having that shift and, and you know, translating that into focusing on the ease of doing business. How does the, the, the visitor come in contact with our airports when they come in? If you're clearing goods, how do they? So that shift for me is my biggest achievement in government. It's going to take a while for people to even realize it. Interesting. But, but that, that for me was a So greatest. you were able to do that, what you call the day-to-day -day normal stuff, but the big stuff was frustrating for you. Yes. The ministry reform, the agency reform, yeah. plus the economics. And then you make a decision to say, okay, I'm not going to renew my tenure. Because you, were you offered to, there was a possibility of you renewing your tenure? There was a possibility, yes. The, the, the way it usually works is um, um, when you give notice that, oh, my tenure is expiring on such and such a date, um, you are often asked, would you like to put yourself forward for consideration for another tenure? Uh, because government usually doesn't like making someone an offer which they reject. Interesting. So you are then asked, okay, if you are offered a second term, would you take it? And, and so that's when you say, yes, if I'm offered, I'll take it, or no, if I'm offered, I will not take it. That's, that's the way it tends to happen. So you said... And so when I was asked whether, uh, if offered, I would accept a second term, I said, no, I would not. Interesting. So let's yeah. talk about your work to DA, DAI. Yeah. What, I'm just knowing now that it's a for-profit organization yes. rather than non-profit. Yeah. So talk me through what you do and that unique position about DAI in, and it looks like a governmental relation business. And <laughs> uh, I'm interested in that model okay. <laughs> to see okay. and to know what you, why you chose to work there. Okay, so why I chose to... Okay, so first of all, um, DAI is a for-profit development consultancy. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's a for-profit development consultancy. Now, the way that things work is that people that work in, say, DFID are civil servants. Okay? People that work in the World Bank are, are, are civil servants, basically. People that work in the United Nations are civil servants. Civil servants are very good at writing about it. 
they're often not very good at doing it. And so if you, if you ask, if you say to a civil servant, okay, we need to move this office from this room to the other room, they can give you all the justifications and write beautifully about it. If you say to them, okay, physically move this operation from this room to the next without a loss of functionality, they struggle. And that's where people like us come in, technical consultants who know how to do it. And so what DAI does, it, it provides technical expertise to donors. So if, uh, if, if, um, if DFID wants to run an education program, it will hire DAI. It will design that education program and then hire DAI to deliver that education program right. to achieve the purposes for which it had designed that program. And so we do that work for DFID, we do it for the World Bank, we do it for the EU, we do it for USAID. And so they design a program. We compete with everybody else. We compete with McKinsey's, we compete with PwC, uh, we compete with KPMG, we compete with various other development consultancies. Um, when we win the, the, the contract, we deliver it on behalf of on behalf of the, the, the organization. So the your government. clients are the donor to government? The, uh, uh, the donors are one of our clients. We also work directly for governments. So as an example, I did a piece of work for the Nigerian Ports Authority two weeks ago. I'm doing a piece of work for the Rural Electrification Agency uh, very soon. So we also work for government. We also work with the private sector as well. So we have, we have, and we work for foundations like the Gates Foundation, the uh, Ford Foundation, Faith Foundation. We, so we work for, we are basically consultants for hire. So how That's does you feel being in government and now a consultant? Well, it's a natural transition for a few, a lot of people in, outside Nigeria where you work, you're a minister, uh, maybe a, a secretary to to the government one time and then you become a consultant or you become lobbyist. I don't know how prevalent that is in this in this country. Well yeah. to move from government to a consultant. Yeah, well I it is it's what I've done all my life. I've I've moved from I've moved from uh, government to the private sector to, to government back to private sector. Um, but I say to people that I've I've done the same job for 32 years in different guises. And that job is, is always to seek how to, uh, how to do things better. That's, that's what I've done. I've done that as an internal consultant within government. So my job in the Bureau was basically as an internal consultant for government. My job in, in the Prime Minister's office in the UK was as, as an internal consultant. Interesting. And so, the same, exactly the same position, being able to say to the rest of the public service, this is what you should do, and this is how you should do it, and I'm here to help you do it. And so, it's, it's the same job I've, I've done uh, basically all my life, apart from a four-year stint practicing law. And so, when, when, I, when I was running a, a DFID program, I was actually responsible for actually delivering the program at the time, Right? Uh, but my employer was DAI. Oh, so you've worked for DAI before? Yes, yes. Before I you for, went into government? Exactly, yes. So I worked for a company that DAI took over. Right. Uh, DAI bought. As, 
Okay. Okay. So the, I bought that company I used to work. So that's why it's a bit it's a bit difficult for me to say how long I've worked for DAI because it, it's either it's either 10 years or it's one year, depending on whether you count DAI with the previous organization I worked for that they bought or the or the current one. So but but my current role is as country director for DAI, which is managing or overseeing all DAI programs in Nigeria. How big is the is the operation? DAI, DAI is a six hundred million dollar business. Um, Interesting. But the, the the fascinating thing about DAI is that it's an employee owned company. So so I'm a part owner of DAI. Uh, what that does is for those of us that are, that believe genuinely in development, there isn't a big bad corporate body looking at the bottom line. We can actually do development for the sake of development. And that's why some, project, some programs uh, that DAI runs, we don't actually make any money from it. We do it because there's a developmental need to do it. So that gives us a lot more freedom. We're not as, we're not cutthroat like some of uh, our other competitors. We actually, we're actually people that believe in development. And, and, and so we try to do a good job and we try to do it because there's a development need to, to do it. So when you say $600 million, is that based on revenue or valuation of the business? It's, it's based on the, the turnover. The turnover, yeah. annual turnover. Annual turnover. And it's yeah. global. And yeah. you're pretty we work in more than 100 countries. Majorly in the global south. Yes, majorly. Right. Right. Yes, because that's where donors tend to work. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're now the country director and you're pushing a lot of the agenda around uh, executing on behalf of donor and, and, and consulting. Um, I'm, I'm going to get to the end of this conversation now by asking you one direct question, which is, so you're very active on social media. You, you're engaging not just in politics or on policies or, or, or your, day, your day-to-day work, but also in politics and, and social, uh, some personal stuff. I want to know, what are your, and, and then you do, you do this even while you're in government, which is a mm-hmm. bit freshening, like I said at the beginning. How do you see public engagement, especially during, through social media? Mm. How do you see that work in terms of uh, the good, the bad of it, and, uh, and the risk that it, it, it has? Mm. I, I don't want to go into, okay, social media is good and engagement, but I want to know from your own person, why, why you use it, and what, what, what were your reasons for doing so, and what are the risks of somebody uh, who is a public uh, person doing that on a regular basis? Okay, so, so for me, the, the first thing was because the agencies like the one I run tend to be underfunded. You know, agencies that, that do intellectual work and do research tend to be underfunded because people prefer to fund roads and bridges and pouring concrete. And so my, my foray into social media was first of all out of need, simply because I could not afford to pay for traditional media. I couldn't afford to go through TV, radio to, 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 to engage with the public. Um, so that was the first thing. So social media provided an, an opportunity for me to get my story out directly in my own words. So I, because, you know, when you get, when you get traditional media, 
there are times you even give them a press release. They can't even reproduce the press release you've given them. So at least in this way, I'm the one writing it in my own words. And I'm getting the message. I'm controlling my, my message and, uh, and what I'm putting out. So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing was I felt a need to demystify government and to let people know that look a guy from a boy born in enugu grew up in a butemeta doesn't belong to a political party has never belonged to a political party in his life didn't know anybody can actually come into government and be a dg and that there's no mystery to 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 these things and that i don't necessarily know more than anybody else and, and that's why i actually started a process where uh, I invite people to my office and get them to sit on my chair, the DG chair, and say, in one minute, tell me what you do differently as a DG. Random people? Random people, yeah, random people. And they just somebody will just say, oh, when can I visit you in Abuja? And I'll say, yeah, if I'm in town, come. It's a public office. It's not, it's not mine. So, so people come in, sit down. So, they say, actually, so this guy is actually a human being. You know, and then my my engagement that's not just on work but also on family, also on living, and would also let people know that yeah, we paint this picture of the infallible, perfect public servant. However, this guy is just normal. He laughs like the rest of us. He gets angry like the rest of us. He apologizes when he makes a mistake, and he does make mistakes, just like, so he's just a human being, like, like anybody else. Um, and that was actually quite a deliberate strategy to connect with, uh, with, with my audience. Like you quite rightly said, there are a number of risks with it, just like there are a number of benefits. Um, but again, preparatory to that risk is, look, if you're going to put yourself out there you better be sure that uh, you are doing the right things. And so I was one of the first appointees of government to publicly declare my assets. One of the first. I, I, I may be the first or second, I don't know. I know I'm one of the, the first two to publicly declare my assets. Uh, the bureau I ran won the most transparent in terms of procurement for two years in a row of all the bureaus in the country. I was the, my bureau was the first to, to have uh, an electronic freedom of information portal where you could just request information. The, the, the law says I have seven days to respond. My record was two minutes Interesting. To, to respond to an FOI request. So you must hold yourself out in that way to say, look, here I am. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to steal money. I'm not here to, I'm, trying, I'm here trying to work. And, and so, but that, that also means that, you know, because social media is so unregulated, you get tons of abuse, you get, you know, people suspicious about everything you do. Yeah, but at the same time, most Nigerians know, yeah, this guy is perfect, but he's one of the good guys. He's not perfect, but he's one of the good guys. He'll make mistakes, we'll forgive him. He's, at least he's here talking to us engaging with us, explaining to us. Uh, so I found that, yes, it's been risky, uh, but on balance, I think it's, it's, it's been more beneficial to me than detrimental. That modus operandi, what you just described now, that engagement and the rationale behind it, some of it sounds like a politician in a way. So I'll ask you a direct question. Uh, is there politics in the future of 
Dr. Joaba, would you run for elective office at some point? No. And Why? there's no politics whatsoever in my future. Why? Uh, because I've worked all my life with politicians and I know how difficult political leadership is. Um, I think, you know, if, for those of us that uh, practice Christianity, uh, the Bible says that the, the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people. Uh, some have the gift of evangelism, some have the gift of healing. People have different gifts. My gift is not in political leadership. That's not my gift. Um, I cannot do the double standards required. I can't do it. I cannot defend the indefensible, which I would have to do when I'm in politics. I have seen political leaders get physically sick because of a decision they have to make. Because either way, either way, somebody would die. Wow. I do not want to be in that position. And so, for me, my strength is in being able to independently engineer improvements in the lives of people. I recognize that perhaps the best way to do that is to have political power and to have political authority. Uh, but like I said to you, I have seen instances where political authority is not enough. There's a, there's a need for me to reflect further on how to get that change to happen in the absence of political authority. So, no, I do not see politics in my future. I have absolutely no interest, particularly given the kind of uh, political system we currently run. Perhaps if sometime in the future we have independent candidature, perhaps, and I don't need to belong to a political party, I don't need to buy delegates, I don't need to pay anybody 55 million for a nomination form. Perhaps I might put myself forward in a particular um, office. I don't know. So you recognize the disproportionate power that politics have in making change and affecting lives, whether good or bad. Uh, no matter how good consultants or, yes. or, 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 or civil servants, uh, the yes. political power is yes. super No, it's very power. important. Okay. It's very important, but it's often not enough. But it's very important. Right. I'm going to round off this um, interview by asking some fire-round questions. I was okay. thinking of avoiding them before. I thought you were working in a, a non-governmental agency, but I now realize that you are working as a business person, mm -hmm. actually. You are running, you're running a business. Yes, I am. A massive business. This I am. Is part of a $600 million um, a, a annual run rate business. So I'm going to be asking some questions I used to ask my, uh, my entrepreneurial guests. Mm -hmm. And it's just fire and question here. Yeah, uh, some of them are a quick answer. So the first one is, what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Business what? Pain point. Pain point. Um, biggest business pain point, um, I would say always the balance between development and profit. Interesting. Yeah. That would always be the... The biggest pain point. It's not a. It's not for us. It's not too much of a big deal because, like I said, we are an employee-owned company that focuses primarily on development. But you'll always have that tension between the two because, on the one hand, um, we need to make money to survive. On the other hand, we will need to do development. Otherwise, we're just like everybody else. So, uh, striking that balance is always is always uh, a key issue. Does that put pressure on your margin every time? Sometimes it does. 
Sometimes it does. Because like I said, sometimes um, we may want to do something. For instance, we, 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 yeah, we may want to do a particular project which we have the expertise for. Maybe we develop that expertise in another country. And we can basically do it for here for, for nothing. And it would actually be a trigger to something else. It would ease a problem somewhere else. We quite often do it for, for no profit at all. Um, uh, and then we balance it with something else we're doing somewhere else that has a bigger margin. That's, that's the way it tends to yeah. work. What is your number one growth metric? What do you look for in your organization that indicates that you are growing? And sometimes it could be revenue, but sometimes it could be your development work. But I w I'm interested in growth metric as, as, a, as a way of measuring business growth, um, and num a particular one that indicates growth in other areas. So what is your number one growth metric that you, that you yeah, look at? I, I think for us, like I said, we're, we're primarily a development uh, company. And so... Um, uh, my number one growth metric, metric will be the number of evaluations we get that we are delivering better than expectation. Interesting. So, so the more we are able to get, the more we are able to score A's in any evaluations done by donors or done independently, um, that tells me that we're doing the right things. The second thing, of course, is if we are able to solve problems. So how is our work changing the environment in which we work? Are we creating more jobs? Are we making it easier? Are we making it faster? Are we making it cheaper? Um, those are the kinds of things that, that matter to us. Um, are we going into areas where there's a serious development need? You know, are we going into new environments where there's a serious development need? And those are the kinds of things that that we look at. Yeah. Which book are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I'm reading Melvin King's The End of Alchemy. Someone told me about that. No, there's another book called Alchemy on, on his own. But can you tell me about that book, actually? Because I'm mixing them up. So, so it was written by the, the former governor of the Bank of England. And it was, uh, it was basically trying to... Uh, uh, sound a note of caution on the usual right-wing market-driven approach to uh, governance. So, so the the whole idea that oh, get government out of the way, markets will run everything, uh, and it will be done perfectly. Um, it, it, uh, and you know, you just need markets to work, and every, you know, it starts to question. Okay, so if that's the case, why did we have the global financial crash of 2008? What is the role of government? Is there actually uh, a, a, a bigger role for government than than the normal right-wing economists make out? Uh, is it a proper role of government apart from uh, regulating? the private sector, uh, to, to also ensure that the private sector doesn't fail. Mm. Uh, so those are the kinds of issues. Very, very interesting. So it's a, criti it's a criticism or, or a critical look at a Keynesian um, yes. neoliberal yes, absolutely. Uh, way of looking at policies absolutely. and economic policy. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, which business is getting you excited at the moment, apart from your own business? And, and this, uh, ask, I usually ask this question from people that are into innovative technology world and they can see some move in terms of 
technology or, or businesses that is just shaping people's life and changing them. But in your own case, which business uh, do you see maybe new or existing that is that you is getting you excited? Um, I think I think the whole technology uh, uh, business uh, as a whole, not just information and communication technology, but technology as a whole. Because part of the, the, the destruction of the middle class that we started this conversation with uh, was actually the, the move away from manufacturing and from you know, vocational work and, and uh, doing with the hands to you know, having people with engineering degrees struggling to work in banks. Um, but I go to... Uh, I go to computer villages in Lagos and, 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 and Abuja, and I see what young people are doing. You know, they, they take an iPhone apart and, 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 and put it together. They, you know, so, so I see that. I see a lot of the tech hubs developing innovative things. I see a number of young people developing innovative businesses. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, Kola, is, uh, is, is, is a very good example. Um, and, and, and this is the way in which India basically exploded. This is the way in which China exploded. This is the way in which Taiwan, Japan exploded. And the, the, the good thing about it is that if you, if you look at the trajectory of rapid growth over the last 50 years, it's actually been countries with large populations. China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, you know. So, so we have these ingredients of, of, of a large population, which has its challenges, of course, I know. We have this ingredient of a large population. We have a dynamic um, uh, youth population. Uh, you know, 60% of our population is, be, is, is below the age of 24. There are no government jobs. <laughs> so people have to find a way to, 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 to innovate. So, so I actually think, I actually see that as a... Uh, as, uh, 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 a momentum that is building that that fills me with a lot of hope, and it gives it it, it gets me actually quite excited. Um, we're not yet at the at the at the at the situation where government is is promoting this, but if you look at the if you look at the tech sector in in India, government actually came in very very late. Mm. You know. Um, the whole idea of uh, having call centers based in India had nothing to do with government. The, the whole idea of, uh, you know, universities and tech institutes training people with Silicon Valley in mind had nothing to do with government. And so I, I think this is a movement that is, is growing. Indeed, DAI uh, is doing a feasibility study at the moment to actually set up a coding school in, in Lagos. Um, and, and, and part of that is, is actually to, to, to match the needs of business with the Software training. developers. Yes, the training that people are actually getting. You know, so, so, so that is very, very exciting for me. So I think the whole technology uh, thing, which, which, which was lost over the last 30 years, is beginning to come back, and it fills me with a lot of excitement. That's great. And I think on that exciting note, we're, we're going to round up this conversation. It's been great having a chat with you. Uh, I emphasize that it's going to be interesting based on my, uh, my understanding of your work online. And I think this matches that expectation. I hope you enjoyed you. it as well. I did. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to the show. My pleasure. Thank you.
Beauty in the Future podcast season three is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It means a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.